Holy Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 16. I'll read the first seven verses. I was wondering how many bowls to preach on, and I've decided we'll go through in the bowl season. Sorry, that was lame. <laughs> the first three bowls, Revelation chapter 16, verse 1 through verse 7. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls, or chalices, of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. For it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. As far as the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the preaching of God's word. Lord, bless the preaching of your word this morning. For we know that you are a God who continues to speak through your word as you move the hearts of men, move our hearts. Even as you have promised, we stake our lives upon that promise. We gather because of that promise. We listen. We give our lives to it. For in Christ, all of your promises are yes and amen. And in him, we live and move and have our being. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Uh, yesterday, I was um, at a swim meet, and I was talking to one of the men who had a child there swimming. And he asked me the question, do you worship together as families? And I had to answer that question three times in the affirmative. I'm so <laughs> earnest in conveying not only my love and desire to see covenant families worshiping together, but my pure and loathsome hatred for churches that would send their children out of the presence of God when the word is preached. Now, I don't mean the whole time. There comes a time, children, when you become too much. Maybe a distraction. And all of you kids out there have been at one point that child. <laughs> um, you know, I've seen adults fall asleep and snore in church, so I guess even adults can become a distraction. But the power and glory and beauty that is conveyed in the preaching of the Word of God is the means by which we are all saved. And just on a practical point, Think of the things you would miss hearing. You know, those out-of-sync amens? 
or the notes that are hung unto a little longer. Uh, and when we reach those notes, what a blessing it is to worship as God's covenant families. Now, that has nothing to do with the sermon, but I just want to tell you how sweet it is um, to be up here and to see and to hear. And I know, parents, sometimes you get frustrated. When will I ever hear a whole sermon? It's worth it. It's worth it. In Revelation 16, we find the completion of God's wrath against Jerusalem. Last week, we saw the prelude, and like every prelude, there are hints within it of what is to come. There are flavors, there are themes that will be picked up on later. And in Revelation chapter 15, the prelude to the bowls or chalices because they are wrathful revelations of God's glory and perfection take the theme of the shutting off of the Holy of Holies. No more mercy, only wrath. Now, part of the reason why revelation is oftentimes difficult to us is not just the terrifying visions, but the hard news And sometimes on Sunday, we are done with bad news. We want good news. But mature Christians rightly understand that the glory of Christ is displayed in two ways. His righteousness, his glory, his holiness is manifested on earth and in heaven. Not only in mercy and grace, but also wrath and condemnation. If you don't like that, then the God of the Bible cannot be your God. And so what we must do is we must come to terms, not with a God who is fickle, but a God who is perfect and infinite in his righteousness, in his being, in his justice, his goodness, and his truth. And there are things that cannot be forgiven There are people whose lives will not be redeemed. But that judgment is predictable in that it is always connected to one singular, continuous, stubborn action in men. And that is the refusal in the sight of God's mercy to reject it, to not receive it. And so every good Preaching ministry, in the main and by and large, must contain not only invitations to believe the gospel of Christ, but fair, clear, continuous warnings of what will happen if you do not. Now, when that happens, it does not mean the minister is particularly angry with you, although sometimes the minister's children may not be accepted from that, and he must be careful, right? Not to bring the drama of the week into the pulpit. For it is the righteousness of God and not men that is to bring us to redemption. God's glory will be displayed. And here we find the completion of the glory of God manifested upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the city that represents the nation for their continuous, loathsome rebellion and rejection of the mercy of God, displayed not once, 
but countless times. And so here, as we come to the full expression, where there were partial expressions of the wrath of God, now the complete and full measured expression of God's wrath against that city, we find bowls or chalices, expressions of condemnation. And that is what I want to talk about. The first three of them this morning. The first, the censures. And secondly, the grounds of these bowls. The censures and the grounds. Now, do you know what a censure is? A censure, young people and those who don't know what it is, uh, when you are opening up the book of discipline in our own denomination, if it ever comes to the point where a session has to impose some kind of admonition against a person for rebellion, you have a trial. The session rules according to that evidence. A judgment is made, guilty or innocent. And then a censure is determined based upon the nature of the offense. So kids, you're at home, and you say to your sibling, I hate you. That may warrant. I heard someone copy that. Don't copy that. Maybe I didn't hear that. <laughs> it's bad enough. And you should be rightly disciplined. But what if the same time you said, I hate you, you ball up that fist and you bring it around and you just smack your sibling? An even greater offense that requires an even greater censure. It would not go well for you if it was discovered. And we know of God. He's a righteous judge. He sees all things. This censure against Israel is directly, fairly, righteously related to the nature of their sins. Now, we'll get to their sins in a moment. But the censure here is represented symbolically by the pouring out of heavenly divine wrath contained in chalices or bowls. Trumpets and then bowls. Trumpets earlier in chapters 8 and 9 and then chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, that herald the judgment of God and hear the full consummate completion of that judgment. Now these bowls possess familiarity and are not unlike the plagues that were brought against Egypt in Exodus chapter 9. The first of these are sores. The second is the turning of water to blood. Now why these things? Because in the scriptures, God compares a rebellious Israel to Egypt. What is Egypt? Egypt is that nation covenantally divided from Yahweh. It is all of those who in seeing the plagues refuse to believe and obey the voice of Yahweh. I am that I am. So when Moses comes, he's not merely preaching to Israel. He is preaching to both nations, Egypt and Israel. And he is saying to both nations, the one who has sent me to deliver Israel says to both of you, what? You must contend with my presence and this call, let my people go. That was a call to obedience. And the Pharaoh, time and time again, we read it in two ways in Scripture, 
hardened his heart or God hardened his heart. And wisely so, in the Dutch Reformed tradition, they say that Pharaoh is a type of the seed of the serpent. He is the covenant head of a nation that has allied themselves against Christ and his people. And so God brings judgment. But not all of Egypt was judged. When Israel fled, there were Egyptians that observed the Passover. And they also left with Israel. Why? Because God will, in his time, call men from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's a little glimpse of the opening up of the floodgates of salvation that will be poured out upon the world. Well, Israel has seen all of this. Their family And despite being delivered out of Egypt, going through the Red Sea, going to Sinai, receiving the law, having the prophets, giving the kings, all of these things happening. And then the prophets, time and time again, God allures them, as we see in Hosea. And Israel is symbolically represented by Gomer. Gomer was no good girl. She was a bad girl. She was a bad lady. Very immoral. And yet God called Hosea to marry this woman of ill repute. Why? Well, to live out what it was like to be married to Israel. A wayward bride. And yes, the scripture gets even more explicit in the descriptions of the people of Israel. And so God brings judgment not upon a bunch of strangers but upon a people who had seen and heard his goodness and his mercy and his warnings, all of his covenant revelation time and time again. And so they were given two of the plagues given to Egypt so that they may see then, and I would contend even at a future date when God will restore many Jews back to the faith, these glorious truths that they had become like Egypt but worse. For Egypt was ignorant compared to Israel. Think of all the things you have seen and heard. Those of you who have grown up in covenant homes, what you have to reject to say no. It is an astounding weight and burden of proof that there is a God who made you and he alone is to be feared and worshipped. You have to say no in the face of all of that. And a whole nation has done this. And how have they done it? Well, instead of taking upon themselves the name and mark of the Redeemer, they have traded the name of the Messiah for the names of false gods, for the very nations that at one point took their children and killed them. What a betrayal! And so for this, they got sores. Verse 2. So the first, that is the angel or messenger of God, poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast. God pours out upon those who were once members of the visible church, yet were by no means of Israel, not true 
men, women, and children of faith the plague due to their rebellion. They are not innocent, but rather they bear the sores of idolatry. They had rejected King Jesus, and they professed Caesar is king. And a man like Pharaoh, this king of Rome, a man who encouraged and embodied idolatry, Herod and others, pagans, devoting themselves to irreligion and immorality, they rejected the God of their youth. And so they got bulls. The first, sores of idolatry. The second, the reversal of that which brings life to that which brings death. Water was turned to blood. Now, in order to understand this rightly, we also would do well to go back to the book of Exodus where God turns the Nile, that source of life, that vein, running through the heart of a continent that gave life to an otherwise arid and desolate place. In fact, if you look at where all the great cities in America lie, they always lie by what? Bodies that are coastal or places of fresh water. Not only so trade can be conducted, but you can't go long without water, can you? Maybe three days. And at the end of those three days, you're going to feel pretty worn out right before you die. Water was central. And not only was it central to life, but it was a symbolic expression of the cleanliness of God that he will wash his people. And the inverse of that is blood. Blood was also an agent of cleansing, but only in as much as it was aligned with and associated with sacrifice. But it was also an expression of uncleanness. In the book of Leviticus, you know that there were certain times of the month when a woman was not allowed to come to the temple because of bleeding. That if you got blood on you, or you were not to eat meat that still had blood in it. Even that law pertains to the New Testament, it seems. Blood was a sign of uncleanness, of death, of God's judgment. It was enough for Egypt to see it in ways that are naturally understandable. They didn't think covenantally. They went down to the Nile, and instead of getting water for the day, something they could not drink. It was poison, in essence. And it was a kind of poison that would prefigure in the minds of the Israelites a God who rules with grace and judgment. It was not merely symbolic. It lay at the heart of all covenant faithfulness. And here, a people, though they were not afraid of blood or the sight of it, understood, understood, the place that blood had in the exercise of faithful religion. God would one day remove from covenant faithfulness all bloody sign and sacrament. In the place of Passover, the Lord's Supper. In the place of circumcision, baptism. But these people sought to hang on to the bloody sign and seal and even the signs and seals that they clung to, the sacrifices that they offered in the temple, 
were not for the sake of forgiveness of sins. They did not believe in the Redeemer. And so Christ, ironically, for it is ironic, if you go down to one stream to get that stuff of life, and really you begin to draw into your buckets death. Remember what Christ says to the woman of the well? That he who comes to me will never thirst again. These people had drawn water from empty cisterns for far too long. And now there was only death available to them. Water became blood. You got it? Is it clear? And not just blood, but even at the time of the Roman war with the, uh, the Jewish nation, Israel, there was a great and mighty sea battle in which many men, we read this from Josephus, I think we can take it on the face, that the sea became red with the blood, not just of men, but dead bodies. It wasn't just flowing blood. It was coagulated, chunky mess. It was the filling up of the judgment of God in a most visible and disgusting of ways. And this is what rebellion gets you. Because God is true and just. Now, there are many kinds of rebellion expressed in the Scripture. And though all are morally and spiritually speaking a rebellion and a turning away from the plans and purposes of God to do sin according to one's own desires, because all sin is rebellion, the rebellion of Israel was particularly high-handed. High-handed means very, very bad, very heinous, clear in the face of truth, every sin you commit, Christian, is heinous. For every single sin you commit is committed in the knowledge that every sin you do commit deserves the wrath of God. You, church, are therefore, by definition, the worst of all sinners. Is this not what Paul says? I'm the chief. How do you become the chief of sinners? By knowing what every sin deserves, and yet doing it anyway. And because you realize you are chiefs in your rebellion, you become quick to the throne of mercy. And it is true even more of elders, pastors, deacons, mature in the faith. You and I have no business sinning. And oh, <laughs> we do it anyway. Not because we are victims, let us not take the language of a modern world of addiction and the isms, but of willful rebellion. Every single man, woman, and child here deserves God's wrath. And so what causes a people to know that? And what do sinners persist in, in the knowledge of God's wrath? Well, what do they endeavor to do? Not to run towards the truth and to be freed from wrath by forgiveness, but to do what? By silencing all that say otherwise. And that is what we come to here. What are the grounds? Well, the grounds, point two, as I have expressed already, is first, idolatry, the one I have not opened up yet, is the silencing of the prophets by murder. 
Look at verse 4. Then the angel, the third, poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who was and is and is to be, because you have judged these things. Here it is. For they, Israel, those who reject the mercy of God, they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. They violated the sixth commandment, and not but once. It was not a job you wanted. It was not a calling that you prayed, God, would you please make my son a prophet? Although there were some who did. It was a pretty dangerous calling. We see this in the life of Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha, and many others. And many of them were put to death. It was not just those who recorded the scriptures. There were many other prophets. What is a prophet? Well, within the Reformed tradition, even as we read in the book of Romans chapter 12, preaching is the art of prophesying. Not new revelation, but a prophecy is simply this. God has said. And when God says something, young and old, what are you to do? You're to put down what you're doing, You are to attend the voice of the Lord and say, as Samuel said, Lord, here am I, speak, for your servant is listening. Or as Isaiah said, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. Here am I, send me. Humility, submission, and obedience. Now, for their idolatry, they got sores. But for their murder... That stuff of life became the stuff of death. Now one commentator writes, As a city, the murder of prophets was characteristically Jerusalem's signature item. We see this in 2 Chronicles 36, Luke 13, and Acts 7. When it came to prophets and saints, this was a bloodthirsty city. And so it was fitting that God turned all their flesh, fresh water to blood. Now, you think... Portland, Seattle, Chicago, Detroit, even cities now like Atlanta, New York. A lot of murderous people. But oftentimes that murder is contained between men of violence. There are times where that violence is brought against innocent and nonviolent people, and it happens quite a bit. But this kind of violence in Israel is a special kind of violence. They killed those who sought the salvation of their souls. And say what you will about the world in which we live right now, we're not there yet. And I say all that to say this. Can you imagine a world where it is so? And the burden that Paul feels. Would that I be accursed, he says, if but my brethren... He's talking about Israelites, would turn and repent. He's speaking of one who is, because of the faith he possesses, given to him by Christ, cut off from the nation to which he was born into. That is the Israelite nation. Can you imagine your fellow countrymen not only not coming to your worship, 
But standing up there with the doors, not having glass, because you can't have the privilege of glass doors in a nation that endeavors to invade your holy sanctuaries to kill you. Now, we lock the doors because we're not stupid. There are wicked people, but they are few and far between. This was a whole nation that upon hearing of Christ, the Son of God, not only stopped up their ears, but screamed with rage against him. We worship Caesar. There is no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Whew. Jerusalem deserved every ounce of divine wrath that was brought against them. For they killed their pastors, their prophets, their wise men. And those who brought true words against real sin, chief among which was Christ himself. So it was a moment of lightness. Have I told you how much I'm grateful for you? <laughs> Thanks for not killing me. But it begins with what? Not listening. Hardening your heart. Vacating yourself from the presence of God. What grows out of disregard becomes disdain, which becomes outright aggression. In fact, there are many in this world today who are the most violent opposers of the church who once grew up in it. How dark and deep is the rebellion of those who grew up seeing and hearing the glories of God and in their hearts or by their hands have put that truth to death. It may not be happening here, but it's happening somewhere. It's happening and it's happened and will happen. But God will bring judgment. For we find not only the reason of God's wrath to be the sins of Israel, but also one of the reasons that we have for this particular censure is the character of God himself. We find in verse 6 the very explicit reason. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. That's the grounds for the judgment of death. The degree to which that judgment is carried out is the censure, and it is the bowls of wrath here. The bowl is turning of that thing that was once life into death. And so you may ask, is this justice? Now, the foundation for justice is never the outrage of the human heart. In so much as, it must be connected to the outrage of God that we find in his word. It is okay to be outraged at the presence of unrighteousness, but it must always be tempered by God's word. It must be built upon it. And what do we find? That there is a righteous judge who, by definition of his character, gives righteous judgments. Verse 5, I heard the angel of the waters saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. 
It is an exalted way of thinking and to confess that it is right for God to judge sin. You should cry out for this. Now, the only way that you can actually cry out for that, Lord, bring judgment, is if you are one who has already been freed from that judgment by a mediator. In fact, whenever you were at some point in your life, though it may not have been as colorful and dramatic as we often find in the book of Revelation, children, when you were professing your faith, one of the things that you professed was, I'm a sinner. And the session wants to know, do you believe that? And why is that an important thing to confess in the first place? And so the next question is, well, if you believe you're a sinner, what do all sins deserve? And the confession is often spanking. (laughs) I'm going to get canceled for that one. (laughs) Or as I say in my classes, a whooping. And what is that a sign and seal of? It's a kind of means of grace whereby we experience divine wrath against our sins temporarily so that we might fear what? God's eternal wrath. It is a holy simulation. It is a taste. And so when we say, well, more than that, what do all sins deserve? Divine displeasure, judgment, or as my daughter said many years ago, hail. (laughs) That's not the thing that falls from the sky, by the way. Hail, as only a southerner can say it. Hell is what I'm trying to say if you don't understand me. I figured y'all would. God is judge and must judge. He must But God judges in two ways. Because God must judge all sinners, what the gospel is and the covenant of grace is and the manifestation of mercy in Christ the Messiah is, is Christ takes upon himself for the sake of his children and all who call upon him, those are his children, the judgment they deserve in their place. The hell of the cross was not the nails only. Even more poignantly and painfully, it was the wrath of the Father poured out on the Son without any mediation whatsoever. Maybe, kids, you've gotten one of those moments for a really bad sin, a really bad spanking. And then you get one of those that you remember for the rest of your life. I remember those. Those that brought me to my proverbial knees. And I looked at my dad, no more. And he's looking at me and he goes, I don't like doing this. I don't. I'm like, are you sure? Because I don't like it either. So why are we doing this? Because a just father must... Bring what? The fear of what rejection brings. God can't not bring judgment. But what he does provide 
And the, the proof of that is that Christ is on the throne right now. This is Christ working. Is that there is a way out. There is a way through the sea, through the river, to the other side. Because God must judge, we must flee that judgment in the one who was judged for us. And this is what makes God's judgments righteous. Is not only are they according to his character, but we can look at them and say they are good because we have been given ample warning and instruction as to how we are to flee from them. And so everyone that is ever judged is always judged because they have refused God's offer of grace in Christ. That's the only way God can judge righteously. And so when I hear this, even after a lifetime of being raised in the church and hearing the gospel, I hear it and I shudder and I think, may I never get to the point in my life where my heart is cold, not only to the promises of God, but to the warnings of judgment. John wants the glory and the righteousness of God to loom large in his readers' minds. Not only then, 2,000 years ago, but 2,000 years later for us. And all of heaven concurs. And their testimony is truer even than ours on earth. That the one who sits upon the throne of heaven and earth, he is righteous and his judgments are righteous. God does not have to. But he does explain to us why he does what he does when it comes to judgment and grace. Israel deserved it, and so do you and I. Because all of us sin in light of God's revelation. May we not continue to do so. And I'm talking in particular in those pointed, direct acts of rejecting the Messiah. May we not look at Christ and be apathetic or even worse, aggressive against him. This is why we do evangelism. This is why we do apologetics. This is why we do all of it. It is because there are people out there who this day show themselves to be those who know of God and they say, I want nothing to do with him. We go to them, how? Take The treatment. Take the cure. Stop. In your stubborn rejection. Fear God. The psalmist says, as I've said so many times, kiss the son. Seek his salvation. For he is righteous even in his judgments. May we repent of our own sin and find peace in the one who is our peace. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God.